All right, so we're going to be in 1 Timothy 6, verses 2 through 10. And I'll begin reading in verse 2. These are the things that you are to teach and to insist upon. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy and strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and to destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. So this time we're in 1 Timothy. We're going to be taking a look at the section immediately following Paul's instructions to the church. Particularly in the last two weeks, we've been looking at his instructions to uh, first Timothy and how he ought to deal with widows, and then uh, to Timothy's instructions on how he ought to deal with other elders in the church. And, uh, and he concludes about how employers and employees, uh, in the context of first Timothy, masters and slaves, are to handle and interact together, particularly as they look to honor the Lord in all that they do. And then this week, we see that he is moving from those instructions back to a defense of sound doctrine, a defense of sound teaching. And he, he says in the beginning of verse 2 that these are the things that you are to teach and to insist on. So these things could refer to most of First Timothy, a lot of the things that we've already seen him insisting on and defending, but that these things could also be a reference just to at least the content of chapter 5. And chapter 5 is very hands-on, very practical. And so when he says that these are the things that you are to teach and to insist upon, that we can uh, assume that he doesn't think of those pragmatic, practical instructions as, let's say, less important than theological ones. He seems to think that they are just as important to defend as the theological instructions. And that's because in 1 Timothy and really in most of the New Testament, practical theology goes hand-in-hand hand with actual theology. So if Timothy truly believes what it says in uh, 1 Timothy 3, that Jesus Christ came and was vindicated by the Spirit, that he was manifested in the flesh, if he really believes that, it will affect him in terms of how does he treat the widows in his church? How does he obey God's law by listening to complaints against elders? So the practical theology is an outflowing of his true theological foundation. Now, uh, in this week, we're going to be looking particularly at the idea of contentment, and that's because as soon as Paul uh, tells Timothy he's to, supposed to teach and insist on certain things, he then turns and goes back to the false teachers, and one of the marks, probably the dominant mark of the false teachers in this section, is a lack of contentment. So, uh, first, Timothy uh, is to recognize there are false teachers. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. So Paul 
seems to think that there are false teachers present. We've already seen him alluding to them earlier in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, where he talks about the people who are in love with myths and endless genealogies, but they don't really know what they're teaching about. They, they pretend to know the law. They pretend to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. And he says something similar here in verse 4, that these false teachers are conceited and they understand nothing. Now, the instruction that Paul gives here, this sound instruction of our Lord, is something, remember, Paul is writing this, and Paul has instructed Timothy on sound theology so far. And so when Paul says that these instructions that someone might disagree with are the sound instructions of our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the things he's doing is he's telling us that Paul doesn't think that his teaching is Paul's teaching. Paul thinks that Paul's teaching is Christ's teaching, and so it carries with it Christ's authority. So one of the immediate applications to this is we can't go to Paul's letters in the New Testament and try to pin them up against what Jesus says in the New Testament as though they are two different authorities talking about things. The words of Jesus, the red letters of our Bible, are just as important as the epistles, as the letters of Paul, as are the the Gospels and even the non-red letter parts of the Gospels. What Paul's saying here is his instructions are Jesus's instructions. And so, this is what Timothy's supposed to defend. And in his defense of these things, he's supposed to not just give intellectual teaching, but he's supposed to actually exhort Timothy. And this is a pattern that we follow today as Christians. If we're discipling someone and we are teaching them something, we don't just give intellectual instruction, but we actually insist that they would follow it. So part of pastoral ministry is the teaching aspect, the thing that happens in front of people. And the other part of pastoral ministry is the, let's say, one-on-one insisting upon things that we see here in verse 2. So Timothy's not just supposed to give upfront instruction in front of the church, but he's also supposed to, in his one-on-one exhortations and meetings and time together with people, to insist that they would actually be obedient to those instructions. So uh, what this would look like on the ground is that a pastor would not just teach those who show up to church on Sunday, but those who are members of the church also have this added benefit that pastors will pursue them, Uh, especially if they're a member of the flock and wandering away. The pastor will insist that this teaching is something they too would follow. They would go out of their way to pursue this lost one. And so Timothy is instructed here to pursue and to teach, but also to defend something strict, only what Jesus teaches, not necessarily Timothy's own opinions. So he has to have a knack for telling the difference between those two things. So what does Paul think about these false teachers? He says that they are conceited and they understand nothing. And those are pretty harsh words from Paul. But uh, these false teachers have caused all kinds of problems in the body. And that's described later in verse 4. So if you look at verse 4, it says they have an unhealthy interest in controversies and in quarrels. And they end about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind. So they go into the body of Christ, and rather than teaching anything edifying, anything that's upbuilding to the church, anything that would uplift the people of God and bear fruit that's useful, uh, they're dividing the body. They produce, as he says in verse 5, constant friction between God's people. So these are teachers in the church, but they are divisive. 
they separate the body of God. Uh, they, they split it apart. And they do so because of their own theological ideas. The point that Paul is making is that good theology, sound theology, that agrees with the teaching of the Lord Jesus, is not unnecessarily divisive. We know, though, that Paul doesn't think all divisiveness is bad. For instance, when he writes Galatians, one of the things he says to the Galatian church is uh, uh, those who are instructing you to be circumcised in order to follow Christ, I wish that they would essentially emasculate themselves. I wish that they would take their own theology and castrate themselves. Now, it's quite a statement. So Paul is being divisive in the letter of Galatians. Paul is actually, if you think about it, being divisive right now when he's writing Timothy because he's saying, here are some people who you ought to uh, identify and then teach against. So he's telling Timothy to divide against these people, but he's doing so on the basis that they're teaching falsely. Mm. Now that, that now then we have a difference between what is true division, let's say division for good reasons, and what, in, at least in this case, seems to be unnecessary division. So these false teachers, they have an unhealthy interest in controversies, quarrels about words, and the product of all this, let's say speculative theology, is constant friction between people. So they, they just produce a whole church of arguers. The fruit of godliness is people who grow in love, who grow in patience, who grow in faith, and ultimately who grow in obedience to Christ. So what another mark of these false teachers is they are the ones who think of godliness as a means of financial gain. So this is where we see the idea of contentment coming into play. Uh, the false teachers think of godliness as something which they can use and exploit and uh, obtain uh, a, better, a betterment in life, a better material success in life because of godliness. Now, unfortunately, uh, this is not just something that's a problem in the first century church. We would say this is a problem in the 21st century church. And at this point, he's not talking about what we would probably call the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. He's probably talking about the more subtle version of that, the one that has made its way into the Western Christian church uh, in, in many different ways. The idea that to believe in Christ adds something of value to your life, meaning if you believe in Christ, he will round out your life and give you a good basis of morals to follow. Or if you believe in Christ, he will lead you into, let's say, a healthy, committed marriage relationship. Or if you believe in Christ, uh, hard parts of your life will begin to ebb and flow away, and it will be, uh, you'll be happier, you'll be healthier, you'll be better off. People who think about godliness as a means of gain. So that's not, that's not full-blown prosperity preaching. Uh, that's actually a more subtle version of prosperity preaching that has more easily made its way into the evangelical church. So the contrast that is uh, being laid out here by Paul is that you cannot... You cannot think of godliness as a means of gain without contentment in the picture. And that's exactly what he says in verse 6. But godliness, this is in contrast with what the false teachers think, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So one of the things Paul is playing out here is that godliness is a means of gain, but it's not a means of financial gain. It's not a means of material gain. Godliness must be combined with contentment in order to be profitable. As Christians, we're called all the time to be content. And that's exactly what he's saying here. Contentment 
is the thing that augments our godliness and is the thing that makes it worthwhile. And what does contentment look like? But let's say throwing off of the material things and being solely satisfied in the Savior, Jesus Christ. So he goes on to describe in verses 7 and 8 this exact idea. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So Paul doesn't have this whole list of material blessings that he lists out in order to say, if I have all these things, then I'll be content. Mm -hmm. He says, we brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of it. Essentially, if I have food to feed myself and clothing on my back, then I will be content with that. And that's what he means that godliness with contentment is a great game. So you pursue godliness, you pursue faith, you pursue obedience. You get that and you have contentment. You'll actually be very satisfied. You'll be very much better off than you would be otherwise. Godliness is not a means of material prosperity or material mm -hmm. comfort. It's a, means of, uh, it's a means of gain only when contentment is also brought out as a fruit in the Christian's life. Mm -hmm. So what he's giving us instructions here on is something that's anti-prosperity gospel, but it's also anti all of those other, other iterations of it. It's anti the gospel of pursue Christianity and you will have a more successful life or uh, the gospel of pursue Christianity. And as, a, as you pursue Christianity, as you're a teacher in the Christian church, well, that'll give you more influence. That'll give you a better reputation. That'll, people, that'll make people look upon you as more powerful, more, uh, more worthy of their respect. He also preaches against uh, the health gospel, the idea that if you're a Christian, Christ's will for you is always to be healed in every single situation. We know that that's not true. We know that there are Christians who struggle and ultimately pass away from terminal illnesses, who struggle with pain their entire adult lives. Uh, the idea of the gospel equals bodily healing is an idea that Paul is not espousing here. There's only one gospel, and that gospel is that Jesus Christ is the thing that we get when we believe upon him in faith. We get him, we get the sacrifice that he has merited on our behalf, we get the blessings of his obedience. We get the blessings of his resurrection. But we do not have other gospels that we run at and add to the gospel of Christ. Mm. And you'll notice in verse 8, the, things, the thing that makes Paul content, what he needs for contentment, is a very small list of things. It's food and it's clothing. And so the question we can immediately ask is, what does it take for us to be content? What would it take for us to have contentment. You think about what you have access to on a weekly basis. You have food, you have clothing, but also you have shelter. Most of us have consistent paychecks. Most of us, even if we don't have consistent paychecks, we have a financial safety net by means of relatives and family connections and friendship connections. Um, we have a whole lot of things that are benefits in the culture in which we live. The question would be, how many of those things could you lose before you begin to struggle with discontentment? How many of those things could you lose and still maintain your contentment? I would venture to guess in the Western church, it might take one of those things falling, maybe two or three, but I think very early on, we would recognize that we have a problem with contentment. We would struggle very quickly with being discontent. And what Paul's exhorting us to here is godliness that is augmented with contentment which will lead to great gain. And in this way, I think the Western church can learn a lot from other Christians all throughout the world. But maybe if we just stick with scripture, 
we could learn from Israel in the promised land. So before Israel gets to the promised land, they're in the wilderness. And one of the things that happens in their wilderness wanderings is they have to eat manna every single day, directly fed from God. The manna is fresh every morning. It spoils by the next day. The only day where it doesn't spoil in between days is when they collect manna before the Sabbath so that they have manna on the Sabbath. But you, otherwise, you have to have it fresh every single day. What they learn through that process, not perfectly, but what they do learn is that they are dependent daily on God for food, for shelter, for provision, for water, for things like that. As soon as Israel gets into the promised land, as soon as that generation that was in the wilderness passes away, they get in the promised land, they conquer the promised land, then they get comfortable. Then they start having bountiful harvests. Then they start having security. Then they start having generations of land built up and wealth and all this stuff that God has blessed them with. But the problem with all of that access, all, all of that access to stuff, all that material provision, is that it leads them towards a kind of complacency with God, a kind of contentment that rests not upon God, but upon their material possessions. And so what they do is they become uh, disobedient. They become idol worshipers because they, they are so attached to their stuff that they think that well, they're going to hedge their bets. They're going to worship different kinds of Baals, different Canaanite gods, so that they can assure that the harvest and the material blessings that they have access to are maintained. So we can learn that lesson very easily. Israel in the Promised Land shows us the kind of danger uh, a perfect storm environment can produce in our own hearts. And in the Western Church, we live in that kind of environment. Mm. Something that comes to mind when I think of this is when I was in college, uh, particularly when I was doing research over the summer, I would grow these single-celled organisms. And my job on that research team was to grow them uh, as healthily and as quickly as possible. So you would put them in these different beakers and flasks. You'd put them in there with nutrients. You'd put them in there with all of the stuff that they needed. But then you'd also put them into an incubator, which was warmer than room temperature, and it stirred the different uh, flasks. And the result was you're creating the perfect environment for these single-celled organisms to grow. And now you don't need to have done college research. If you, uh, let's say, have left Tupperware out too long in the heat or in a car or somewhere where it's warmer than room temperature, you'll know very quickly that moisture and nutrients and the right amount of heat produces growth, mold growth, all kinds of stuff that'll grow in there. And it's because it's the perfect set of circumstances to produce, uh, to produce this kind of growth. Now, all of that is not growth that is external, but all of that is growth that is internal. So if mold grows in your Tupperware container, it's not that it got in there somehow after you left it, it's that it was there the whole time, but just in a really, really small quantity, and only grew after the environment became perfect. This is exactly the idea with discontentment, is that all of these other, all of these other let's say, uh, aspects of discontentment, uh, things like apostasy and things like not loving God more than you love money, those are, are not something that's external to us. That's something that's in our hearts, our disobedient and rebellious hearts, that money and success and uh, comfort, it, it's a perfect storm environment for all of those things to uh, be brought out of our hearts. And the danger, particularly with Western Christians, is that those things are not just sins that we have regular access to. They're also sins that, by and large, the church has turned a blind eye towards. 
So we struggle with discontentment as Christians, but also other Christians don't have the freedom because of our cultural pressure to call out that sin in our lives. In fact, many of us don't even recognize the discontentment that we struggle with because it's a, it's a sin that has gotten the pass. It is a sin that has gotten the green light to, be, uh, to not be talked about. And so the result of this on the ground in Timothy's context is severe. And we should hear these warnings. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and into destruction because the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So what can the love of money cause within us? It can cause within us apostasy an abandoning of what we believe as Christians and a running towards money rather than God. This is what Jesus says in his teaching. He says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And money produces within us the kind of environment where other sins can, can crop up. Now, this text says that it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. But we have to confess that access to money does produce within us and, and create within us a desire for that money. It, creates a, it gives us a shorter and quicker access to that temptation. And so, as American Christians, we have to guard our hearts closely and carefully. As people who live in an affluent part of Indianapolis and in a city that's doing well with many accesses like stable jobs, stable incomes, good connections and relationships, uh, we need to be aware of the fact that comfort can produce within us discontentment if that comfort goes away. Our comfort, or sorry, our contentment, can often lead us to a reliance on comfort. If we find our contentment only in Christ, only in his finished work, then that's really good. But the issue is most of us have a contentment that's only based upon our material circumstances. And I think that's something that's interesting for us to reflect on. I think that's something that Paul is drawing out here in the text. The point is very simple. If Timothy is to instruct soundly, and instruct against false teachers, one of the things he's going to have to do is recognize that certain sins will lead people astray from true teaching. The love of money being one of them. Greed is one of these sins. And if that greed gets hold of someone's heart, it can cause them to wander away from the faith and abandon Christ altogether. So this is not some tangential sin that Christians can lug around with them. This strikes at the very core of our love, the very core of our affection. And ultimately, it's something that we should deal with as though it's very serious, because Paul seems to think that it's very serious. So with that, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text, uh, particularly the verses that challenge within our own hearts our need for obedience, our need to recognize when sin is present in our hearts. And also, Lord, uh, we recognize that with these topics, particularly in our culture and in our context, we need eyes to see we need your grace to recognize within ourselves and be able to have the courage to speak to others when these sins are present and we are aware of them. And we pray that you would give us grace not only to see sin when it's present, but also to walk out obedience and the killing of that sin by your grace and by the power of your Son. We pray this in your name. Amen.